today about to commence a new study, a study in the brief book that is 2 Thessalonians. And here today we have one of those times where I've made a decision today. Um, in looking at my notes, I realize that what I have is a really long sermon. And so I've decided that what I'm going to do then is split it up. And I'm just telling you this at the beginning because where it's going to end today is a convenient ending point, even though it's going to feel like an incomplete message. And that's true. That's what it is. So come back next week, huh? But thank you, or you're welcome, I should say, for, for two medium-length messages as opposed to a, a long message, okay? And uh, I want you to turn with me, if you would, please, in your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians as we read these, these first four verses. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes the following. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but... The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for moving your apostle to write this second epistle to this beloved congregation and for superintending through your spirit that it be inspired as your word for your people at all times and all places. And we thank you that it has come down to us. Grant, Lord, that we would be faithful stewards of it, and that we, too, would faithfully proclaim it and pass it along to the next generation. We ask that you would be with us now as we explore these verses. For Christ's sake, we pray this. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, about a year ago, we commenced our look at the Thessalonian correspondence by looking at 1 Thessalonians. Now I realize that it's been a year and and I make and I have no illusions about the memorability of my sermons. And I recognize further that not even all of you were here a year ago. So you may not remember exactly what went down in the first epistle or what went on surrounding the establishment of the Thessalonian church. When we say Thessalonian, that means of Thessalonica. So there was a Greek town, or a Macedonian town, I should say, named Thessalonica, and Paul established a church there, and you can read about it in Acts 17. So Acts 16, 
is where it records the gospel invading the European continent. Okay? So the book of Acts is more than halfway over before the gospel even reaches the European continent, the continent that that 2,000 years later we associate with the Christian faith, uh, the European continent. It, It engages the European continent in Macedonia. When Paul crosses over from from what is now modern-day Turkey, and he lands at Philippi, which is the first European church established in Acts. And you can read in Acts 16 all the wondrous circumstances surrounding that establishment. But at the end of his time there, he's beaten up and thrown in prison. And then he, the next day... uh, the town officials realized that he was a Roman citizen and therefore it was against the law. They could get in really big trouble for having beaten a Roman citizen. And so they come to him and they try to smooth things over and, and he leaves. But he leaves battered and bruised. And he makes his way in rapid succession down to Thessalonica. And so he shows up there, battered and bruised from his time in Philippi. And he's in Thessalonica just a few weeks before he's again attacked, and he has to flee. But he loves this dear church in Thessalonica, so his heart is broken as he makes his way down to Berea, where we hear about the the Berean Jews who are noble, and so they're studying the Word of God every day to see if what Paul is saying is true, and things are going well there until troublemakers from Thessalonica show up. And he has to flee for his life again. But having been pursued by these opponents of the gospel, he's wondering what's going on back in Thessalonica. And so he sends his two co-workers, Silas and Timothy, the ones who helped him establish the church in Thessalonica, he sends them back to see how things are going there, to encourage them. And Paul himself makes his way down to Athens, He's there just a short while. Then he goes to Corinth, and it's at Corinth where Silas and Timothy meet back up with him. They rendezvous with him after having just come from Thessalonica, and they give a good report. And so Paul is overjoyed, and so he pens 1 Thessalonians in response to having received this good report from Silas and Timothy. So 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest, probably the earliest letter that Paul wrote. It's amazing. And it's a wonderful note of encouragement to this beloved congregation. This very young congregation that only had the benefit of having the apostle, of having their church planter present for a few weeks, like maybe three weeks. I mean, seriously, it's not even a month. It takes us years to plant churches. Paul does it in a couple weeks. It's incredible. Anyway, and so he wants to encourage them in their faith while giving them a crash course or an overview of the theology that he didn't have a chance to teach them. And so that's what 1 Thessalonians is all going to be covering. And in that book, he addresses the matters of being strong and persevering under their persecution. They're curious and they're perplexed, wondering if perhaps those who have died 
are going to be forgotten? Are they going to be missed over, passed over when the Lord returns? And so Christ, or so Paul clears up some misconceptions about the end times. And then, at the very end of his letter, Paul, in just passing over terms, in chapter 5, verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians, he makes this remark. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He says admonish the idle as just one of a series of things that he's going to talk about. Well, so he finishes writing 1 Thessalonians, and then he gives it back to Timothy to take to deliver to the church. Timothy goes to Thessalonica. He's there. We don't know how long, probably not long. And he makes his way back, and he has a report. The church, in essence, is still growing strong. The people there are growing in their faith. They're growing in their love. But the persecution has only intensified. Ooh. And, and guess what, Paul? Those, those questions, those, those concerns about the end times, that things have only gotten muddier because someone has spread a rumor that you've been saying that the return of Christ has already happened. And then third, remember how you mentioned in passing to admonish the idol? Well, it turns out that that problem was bigger than you originally thought because it's, 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 it's sort of catching on. And so Paul then writes 2 Thessalonians in response to the report he gets having had 1 Thessalonians delivered. And so in 2 Thessalonians, the book we're going to be studying for the next several weeks, Paul wants to provide the, con the context is that of persecution having been intensified. So in the light of persecution having been intensified, the people need to have their, their problems, their questions, their misinformation fact-checked concerning the end times. And then they need to have a better understanding of how we should be living in light of persecution and the imminent return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Specifically, he's going to address that problem of idleness, that problem of not working. And so, in essence, Paul is going to be addressing the problems that come when troubles abound and you're expecting hope and relief any second and it's not showing up. You can either become discouraged or you can choose to disengage, which is the two problems that are at the core of what he's addressing here. And so what I want you to think about then as we're going through this book is that Paul wants us to be encouraged in the face of pressure, encouraged in the face of hardship and trouble and trial. I want you to have the assurance, right, the assurance that the Lord has not forgotten you. He is coming again, and he's coming for you, not to get you. I mean, he is. That could be said in a really horrifying way, couldn't it? No, he's coming for you, to bring you, 
into his kingdom, into his paradise. And third, I want you to understand how we are to live in a steadfast manner while we wait. These are the three concerns that Paul has in this letter. And these are my three concerns for you. And thematically, you're going to see some overlap between the themes of our last book we just looked at, Joel. If you read the epistle I sent out today, or earlier this week on Thursday, you know that it's no surprise that there's thematic overlap between the prophet Joel and the apostle Paul, writing several hundred years apart in an entirely different context. Because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate final author of Scripture. And so, that's how we know this word is for us at all times and all places. The Holy Spirit ensures it is so. Now in these opening verses, Paul is going to set the context and provide the basis for everything that follows. And he wants to establish the context so we understand that he understands what we're going through. And then right dab smack in the middle of that, confronting our context head on, are a couple important truths that we need to know. Namely, we need to understand that in the middle of our lives, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, that we are loved and cared for, and that we are people under authority. So, the Sitzimleben, the life situation of this book, of this chapter, of what Paul is going to say here as he, as he thanks God for them, is found in the words at the end of verse 4. He is thankful that they are steadfast and, and their faith is growing, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So please note, he says that you are enduring. That's present tense. So they're in the middle of it. They haven't gone through it and they've come out the other side. No, they're in the thick of it. Real life never takes a break. And the storms and trials and tragedies of life never stop coming. Notice that he says persecutions and afflictions. Who can guess what persecutions is? Anyone? We're going to pretend that we're, a, we're like a, a gospel church here for a minute. Anyone? What's a persecution? Attack from someone outside the church. That's right. To be persecuted is to be specifically targeted because of your faith. Okay? Afflictions, then, which are different than persecutions, who can guess what afflictions are? Anyone? What? Disease, trials, absolutely. It's the other stuff. The other hardships that beset us, that hit us, that, that, that's like they're knocking out our knees. Now, think about this double whammy. They're getting it from the outside. People are oppressing them, marginalizing them, taking advantage of them, mocking them, who knows, perhaps even physically attacking them, just like they had earlier. So they're, they're getting persecuted, but in the midst of it, the storms of life keep rolling. 
And they have their health concerns, their relational concerns, their monetary concerns. There's plagues, there's disease. There's all this stuff of that, that, that besets us, that threatens our constancy. And so together, it's, it's like a horrible mix, isn't it? It's enough going through the troubles of life. It's enough going through persecution. They're going through both. So they are really in the thick of it here. They are going through a hard time. And yet they are demonstrating steadfastness and faithfulness in the midst of it. That is awesome. You know what I think of whenever I think of steadfast? The picture, the image that comes into my mind whenever I think of someone being steadfast. Uh, it's the scene from, from Braveheart at the, for, about the Battle of the uh, Stirling Bridge, which is historically where, where he won his biggest battle. But that scene, you know the scene. It's the scene where the, where the, Brit, where the English knights are charging. And up to that point in history, no, no one had successfully opposed full cavalry charge when they're armored and the horses are just charging and the Scottish line is just there. You can see people are being afraid. And, 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 and you know Mel Gibson, what does he say? What does he say? Hold! Hold! And what do they got to do? They got to wait until the enemy's too close to be able to, to cancel their charge. And then they pick up all the long spears that they had established and the horses and the cavalry charge right into it. Okay, that thunderous opposition charging at them. And you feel the anxiety. You feel the fear. You feel the adrenaline. All of it. And hold. Steady. Steadfast. Immoving and immovable in the midst of the storm. Wow. That's the standard. That is the standard. They're being oppressed. They're being afflicted. They are having it from both ways. And in the midst of it, they are not yielding an inch. They are not about to bow the knee. That is awesome. And it's inspiring. But that's the context. The persecutions and afflictions are no threat to their spiritual vitality. And let me say it to you this way. It is no threat to your spiritual vitality. Why? Get that to get that, I should say, we have to go back to verse one, where he introduces who's writing this letter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Who's Silvanus? That's Silas. Why does it say Silvanus here? I don't know. Why does why does Robert shorten into Bobby? They don't look alike. Or why does Charles shorten into Charlie or shorten into Chuck? I don't know. Names are weird. Okay? Silvanus is just a long form of Silas, but it's that same person, okay? Paul, Silvanus, slash Silas, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, 
This introduction is almost identical to the introduction in 1 Thessalonians, except he makes a small change. And that change is the inclusion of the word our in terms of right before Father. And so here, right off the bat, he wants to remind the people that we are in God the Father, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word in is a reminder of our covenantal union with him. We usually speak of union with Christ, which is proper. But but Paul wants us to remember that to be united with Christ means to be united with the Father. God has covenantally wed himself to us in Christ. He is ours, and we are his. Okay, so we are not just out flapping in the breeze. We are covenantally united to God. We are in relationship with him, and that is glorious. But specifically, he changes it from the first from the first epistle, it's not that truth has changed. What has changed is their particular needs. And th- that should remind us of, of the need that we have to be pastorally sensitive, ministerially sensitive to people. It's not that truth changes. It's that the particular truth they need to hear in a moment might change. And the truth they need to hear right now is that he's God, our Father. He's our Father. So this right here addresses the first of the two main concerns that we have, the the two existential concerns that we have. That concern for safety, for provision, for protection. God is not just the object of our worship, which is what one might think if he had simply said, God. But he's our Father. So, Don't base your opinion here about, don't transfer your experience with your father onto God. Rather, take what God is and transfer that expectation onto your experience as for what's right and wrong. But what is a father supposed to provide? Well, first and foremost, protection. Provision. Discipline. Affection. All these things, right? that need, that fundamental need for security. No one thrives when they don't feel stable. It is imperative at their earliest ages that a newborn infant be touched, that they be snuggled, so that they understand that they are secure even when they can't even formulate the cognitive thought, they experience it. We need security. And so this inclusion right here reminds us that we are in a family. We are in a family with a father who protects us, who provides for us, who cares for us, who will defend us. Okay? So that addresses that first need. You are not alone. You are in a family with a father. But second, he then says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
The word Lord there, what does that imply? That implies kingship. He's a ruler. He's in charge. And so by reminding us of this, he's hitting on that egg, that second existential concern, which is the which is the relation of self to authority. Who is the boss of me? Everyone wants to know who's the boss of them in any given environment. Children. I mean, come on. The threes are way worse than the twos, because in the twos it's just a no, 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 no. They're it's the threes where they really start engaging the will and they start trying to assert themselves as to who's the boss of me. And if we ever look at Exodus together, that's the fundamental question is who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Well, he's going to tell them who the Lord is. But here, this addresses the matter of authority. By saying that we are under the Lord, Jesus Christ, he's reminding us that we are not just in a family, we are in a kingdom with a king. And so we have someone who has the right to tell us what to do. So we aren't just out there. We are secure in a family. And we aren't just free to do what we want. We are under authority as those who have a king. So we are in a family and we are in a kingdom simultaneously. And what do we get from this triune God who has us simultaneously in a family and a kingdom? Well, he says we get grace in verse 2. Grace to you and peace. Grace is what we get. So the basis, the foundation for any relationship with God is grace. And God is the one who gives grace. So our walk, our faith, our profession, everything has as its point of origin God, who is the originator of our faith. And then from that grace, we have the opportunity and the experience, first of objective peace with God, but then we have the ability to make the peace amongst our body. And indeed, he comes to quell even the storms that rage in the sky. All of this is an overflow of the benefit of grace and peace with God. That's what we get. Now, because grace comes from God, and in both its starting and its, in its continuation, that is why in verse 4, Paul is able to say that he, or I'm sorry, in verse 3, that he's able to say it's right for him to give thanks to God for the fact that they're flourishing. Why are they flourishing? Well, in, in part, they're, they're doing their stuff. They're working out their salvation with fear and trembling. But ultimately, God is sustaining them. So it's right to give thanks. But specifically, it is right to give thanks because your faith is growing abundantly and the love for every one of you is increasing. So as Paul is going forward, he wants to bear in mind that your faith has two dimensions. The Christian faith has a vertical dimension. And in scripture like here, that's usually referenced by the reference to your faith. 
Your faith is abounding. That references that vertical dimension where your, your knowledge, assent, and trust of the Lord and all that he is and does and promises and threatens even, all of that is increasing. But then your faith, the Christian faith, has a horizontal dimension. And we see that in reference to love. And he specifically here points out that it's love for one another is, in, is increasing. Isn't that, in fact, the outworking of the two great commandments? To love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. So as he's going forth in this book, he's going to outline how it is that this horizontal expression gets manifest and demonstrated with a context of hardship as we hope and wait for the second coming and live in the interim period. And he's also going to address the vertical dimension of what does it look like for our faith to flourish, our trust, knowledge, and and assent to what the Lord is doing. How does it increase in those same expressions? We have duties regarding both aspects of those things. You have vertical duties, and you have horizontal duties. And Paul gives thanks to God that they are doing that. Now, when we come back next week, we are going to start looking, because the part of this passage that really stuck out to me when I was reading it for the first time was he speaks of a growing faith. like to have a growing faith what are the benefits of a growing faith what what are the impediments to a growing faith why should we have a growing faith all these questions which serve as the next half of the sermon you know we're not going to get into because then it would be a really really long But that's the background for what Paul is going to say in 2 Thessalonians. Trouble abounds. In the midst of it, though, they're flourishing. And he wants us to have hope. And he wants us to have obedience. Because we are both loved and cared for. And we are under authority. Those dual realities mark the lives of the Thessalonians. And they mark the lives of you and me. So, let's pray. And then come back next week.